Uh, welcome to Prime Time at the Bethel University Library. Prime Time celebrates learning in and beyond the classroom of Bethel faculty, students, and staff. And is a collaborative project between friends of the BU Library, faculty development, and other offices on campus. Uh, we'll be talking about teaching at Prime Time in the next two weeks. Literally, we'll be talking about teaching. The faculty development team invites you to a viewing of his documentary film, Why We Teach. That's Monday, April 1st, 7 p.m. in CC 313. And then join the conversation about what motivates, challenges, and inspires our teaching as we lead discussions Tuesday, April 2nd at 11.15 a.m. or Wednesday, April 3rd at 1.50 p.m. over in the Bethel University Makerspace across from the Circulation Desk. I was just telling Chris I sent out a mildly embarrassing email uh, about 15 minutes ago. <clears throat> so. And I told Sam it was actually mildly touching, which he said is what makes it mildly embarrassing. embarrassing. Yes. So look for that. Uh, Sam, as usual, is dominating C faculty. He's really kind of insufferable at this point. Today, we're recording a Live from AC Second podcast about thinking in public. And we'll explain both what Live from AC Second is and what thinking in public might be as we go along. Uh, I do want to thank you for coming. It's the first of these after spring breaks, which I you know is kind of awkward timing. I also know we're competing with lunch with Frenchie in the DC today, so it's, it's hard to make choices of your time. So I appreciate you being here. But since the DC is doing kind of throwback to pre-Rush Harbor Commons Bethel, we thought we would start with a throwback to another uh, older time in Bethel history. Uh, return with us, if you will, to August 16, 2006, when this was recorded and broadcast. Welcome to CWC, the podcast. This is our first podcast ever, and so we're blazing new trails here at Bethel University for this very class. I'm Stacey Hunter-Hecht. I teach in the political science department, and I'm one of the team members for CWC this fall, and I'll be joined by... Chris Garretts. I am a professor in the history department. This is going to be my fourth year at Bethel and fourth year in CWC. And I'm Sam Mulberry, and I am in my sixth year of CWC, uh, and I work with the TAs, and I'm loosely in the history department. Well, we want to use the beginning of this uh, podcast to talk a little bit about why we're doing the podcast, what we hope to accomplish, talk a little bit about future shows, and, um, and give you some indication as to what you can expect um, in the class generally. So that's what we'll be up to in this first podcast. Why are we doing this? Why the podcast? Mm -hmm. Will we have celebrity interviews? We will have celebrity oh, interviews, sorts, however. Yeah. Okay. There'll be celebrities of sorts. So we might have interesting people on the show, although <laughs> this seems uh, incredibly unlikely. Um, what we are hoping is that this will spark some conversations about course material and maybe um, provide a little bit more informal channel for, um, for you to get a sense of how the faculty reflect about some of these things. And also give you a chance to ask questions that you might not want to ask in class and um, might not be, quite frankly, appropriate in some ways to, to ask in class, to give you a chance to connect. So we'll be anxious to hear from you, and we'll be answering and responding to questions that you've got uh, as part of the podcast in the future. I'm hoping that um, this podcast medium is a way for us to spark some conversations among students um, that happen informally on mm -hmm. campus, um, to kind of build up a, an intellectual subculture around here. It's one of my goals for this. Yeah, one of the things that I'm thinking about, I mean, we're, we're approaching the... Uh, five-year anniversary of 9-11. I remember teaching, Stacy, were you teaching that I semester? <laughs> I, were you here yet, Chris? Uh, yeah. I remember doing CWC that semester, and it was such an interesting moment uh, to talk about a live sort of Christians and culture issue that was happening, you know, at the time. Uh, and I think, I would like, hopefully we can do a little bit of that here as well, start to touch on some of those. Things. I think things like even the current situation in the Middle East, I don't know how we get away from thinking of that as a Christians and culture 
issue. And it seems to me to be a shame to be in a, in a class uh, that's taught about Christianity and Western culture and not have the opportunity to talk a little bit about some of those things that might not fall neatly within the framework of the material that we have to cover in the lecture. And believe it or not, CWC actually gets into the news. I don't know if you've noticed, but um, Greg Boyd has been in the news lately. He's a former Bethel Bible prof and CWC instructor, now pastor at Woodland Hills Church um, in the suburbs of the Twin Cities here. And he was in the New York Times and has a new book out that's caused a little controversy and some really good conversations. Um, actually, if you want to find that article, you can go to our blog, which is another of the media we've taken control of. That's http colon slash slash blogs slash blog slash cwc lowercase slash. If you drop the last slash, you will not get it. And the chances of getting to that are? It'll be a challenge, but the journey is worth the effort. Okay. So we thought, if nothing else, we could listen to Stacy Hack talk for three minutes. And so it's already been a worthwhile primetime presentation. but. I thought we'd, can you click ahead on this one, we'll do it. Um, it was interesting. We, you can actually listen to this whole episode, and I think all of the first season of CWC, the radio show, lives in Bethel's digital library, if you want the virtual equivalent of this space with a larger CWC collection. And so we had just started a new podcast that we'll talk about, and we thought it'd be interesting to harken back. And it was really fascinating to hear Stacy say we were blazing new trails, and I had this sense that we were starting something, the end of which we didn't really know. And yet, at the same time, to talk through why are we doing it. And so as we thought about doing a kind of check-in on what does podcasting look like, why do we do it, how is it developed, how it turned into blogging eventually, um, you know, we thought we'd start, well, what were we trying to accomplish with this podcast? So CWC, the radio show, ran for 11, 11 seasons. seasons. <laughs> we'll get the whole episode count later. But it was meant uh, essentially as a purely optional activity uh, week by week for CWC students. Um, and we thought, well, one thing we do is have interesting people on. Now, Stacy was inherently interesting, Sam and I a little bit less so, and then we brought in people like Sarah Shady, Amy Poppinga, others to really amp up the interesting factor. Uh, but we also tried to uh, interview people. So a lot of our colleagues on the faculty were interviewed at various points, whether they were directly connected to the course or not at all connected to the course. Um, and then we also tried to make a point, especially the first few seasons, anytime there's a significant outside speaker coming for a chapel or a convocation, we'd go ahead and ask, hey, do you want to be on a podcast? So I mentioned Greg Boyd, his Myth of a Christian Nation had just come out. He actually was recorded for the podcast. Shane Claiborne did an interview, uh, Ephraim Smith, Ed Gilbreth, several others. So that was one thing. We could actually kind of bring in outside speakers, in a sense, and uh, talk to faculty colleagues. Uh, the other thing, though, Stacey had this notion right from the very beginning, what can we do to spark a kind of intellectual subculture at Bethel? And I feel like in some ways that's even more salient now as education has become more transactional. Like, where can we just enjoy learning? Where can we just have the life of the mind celebrated? Uh, I should give credit where credit is due. This had all started a couple months before we did a CWC workshop and one Bob Kistler had talked to us about podcasting and Stacey said, oh, like CWC, the radio show. And she started thinking about this intellectual subculture piece. And we sort of set an arbitrary target for ourselves of, you know, what if we had like 20 to 25 students listening? It would be like an extra small group that has no grades or tests attached and just students voluntarily listening. And that did seem to happen, and we kept doing this. I think what was unexpected is that it became not just students, but like alumni. Our students would graduate and then stay connected to us. I still have Facebook friends that I only know as CWC, the radio show listeners, but they continue to check in with us. 
And so the, the kind of less expected outcome is that podcasts let us stay connected, not just to students, but to alumni and then others. So a year after this all started, as I've said before in a different presentation here, I decided to try something a little bit more ambitious and replace 11 of my lectures in History 354 Modern Europe with 70-minute long podcasts that included uh, interviews, mini lectures, kind of less serious sorts of segments, musical clips, film clip, audio, things like that. And Radio Modern Europe ran for two years, and students had to listen to that. It replaced a lecture. Apparently, one of my students actually would come into the empty classroom to listen to it as if I was there. But then it also, I started hearing from alumni. You know, people who had taken the class, people who had had it from Neil Edinga, but then heard it from you know, my version of Modern Europe. <clears throat> and then most interesting, I started getting emails from people around the country and then around the world who had run into this through iTunes U back in the days when that was still a thing. And so you start to get a sense of how digital media could really expand our classrooms way beyond Bethel into much larger kinds of publics, which has become a real theme for me. So even in that first podcast, there's that brief allusion to me trying to direct people to CWC the blog. This is back when Bethel was first trying to encourage professors to blog. This has never really taken off. I think there is blogs.bethel.edu that you can... Here I am again, writing out a URL for people. Um, it's very on brand. And so we actually did a couple of posts about spiritual disciplines. We just had a monasticism lecture, and, like, and then it just fizzled. But five years later, I thought, let me actually take this seriously, and I started doing a blog that I've been doing for about 2,000 posts now called The Pie to Schoolman, which then, making this all the more meta, spun off its own podcast, which we've done four seasons. Um, of. And it, that really goes beyond students, alumni, colleagues. I mean, in the to the extent I've got a public platform, it is that blog and various ancillary enterprises that have grown out of it. Um, and then we also started doing other podcasts. The first of them was kind of the same lineup as CWC, the radio show, is called The Polycast. And let Sam tell the story of that and what it grew into. Yeah, so this was uh, back in 2008. So we did this, uh, Stacy wanted to do a podcast to kind of go along with the 2008 election. Has uh, she started doing Almanac yet? Or no, this I'm, I'm very proud to say that we we had Stacy before she was on Almanac. Um, <laughs> she was she was working with us, and uh, so we did 20 episodes in 2008 into 2009. Um, my favorite of which they were all about uh, about the election, um, and uh, you know, thinking about it as historians and as a political scientist, thinking about uh, the 2008 election, which is a, a fairly significant election in American history. And um, my favorite is on election day, I convinced uh, Stacy and Chris as they were, whatever they were doing that day, to periodically call my voicemail and just leave a message about what they thought about that was happening that day. So if, uh, and these I don't think are available anywhere. I have all this if you really want to <laughs> dig into this. And this will all eventually be on Bethel's digital, um, uh, digital library. Uh, but it was interesting hearing Stacy talk about the, you know, the first Obama election kind of throughout the day. And I remember her kind of reflecting at the end of the day um, on my voicemail, which then I then, this is pretty rudimentary. I think I like turned on my um, speakerphone and put the recorder next to it. And, you know, that's how we did it. But, but it's nice to sort of have that, the record. So we did 20 episodes of that. Uh, and then when the 2016 election came around, uh, I was talking with Chris Moore and Andy Bramson um, and Mitchell Crum about, uh, you know, we should do this again. I mean, this, the, that, was, that got a lot of listeners and a lot of interaction, so it seemed like 2016 seemed like a ripe time to do this again. Um, so we started a podcast called Election Shock Therapy, uh, which I think, like most of our podcasts, got named while we were doing the first episode. The first thing we talked about is what we're going to call this, and Chris Moore came up with that name, and it, it stuck, and now I don't think about what it means anymore, which is what a good title does. 
And, uh, and we started doing this in the 2016 election. And again, at the, the peak of that election, which again was a historic and uh, kind of important election in American history, you know, we had probably around 300 to 400 uh, listeners uh, to that uh, during the election season um, to that. And we've kept doing that. Um, even at uh, 9 o'clock this morning, we did a, a, a podcast about um, kind of reflections on uh, Barr's statement about the Mueller report. We, not reflections on the Mueller report, because we don't have that. But, uh, but talking about that, and that is already up. So if, you're, uh, if you wanted to start listening to that while I'm talking, you could do that, because that's, that's already available. <laughs> Got to put a commercial in if I can. Um, and we've done, so we've done 60 episodes of Election Shock Therapy uh, at this point. And I will say the listenership has tailed off as we got away from the 2016 election. Uh, but we still have sort of a solid base of around 100 listeners um, to, to that podcast, uh, which if you think about you know, major podcasts out there that get 100,000 or a million downloads, it's not impressive. But what I always tell people is imagine you said, we're going to get three political science statists together in a room and have them talk and 100 people showed up, like that would be amazing. And that's what we get every time we, uh, we, we put one of these on. We've also done um, live, uh, live podcasts uh, here in the library. Um, including this one right now. Including this one right now. Yeah. Uh, this is not election shock therapy, though. So well, I'm I just put up live for me. Okay, so. we're, we're getting to that, sorry. Um, and my favorite is on election night 2018, uh, we held a, a, a kind of results-watching party uh, in CC430, and every time, the, every hour when new polls closed and results came in, we would record a five to ten minute uh, kind of mini pod that we would put up that night. Uh, and uh, to the, my favorite moment was around 9.30, my brother walked in, who is, has no connection to Bethel, walked into the classroom and said, oh, I've been listening as you've been putting these up. I want to be on one of these. And then he was on our last one um, for the night. So, so it was a way to do something that was really immediate. At the same time, it's... Uh, you know, it was, it's sort of powerful to listen to, to Stacy uh, talk there back in 2006. Not as powerful to listen to you talk in 2006 or me, but, uh, but it's powerful to listen to Stacey. So we're also creating kind of a historical record of listening to Bethel faculty reflect on these things. Um, so Chris often talks about, um, I forget, is it John Fia, who talks about how historians uh, have a responsibility to write diaries because we rely on diaries from other people when we do historical research. I'm not somebody who's ever written a diary. But I feel like these are, you know, in a way, leaving a historical record. So you're creating a primary source for some future student to go back and say, what were Bethel Profs thinking about in 20, uh, 2008 or 2016? Well, we actually have a pretty rich primary source for that. We're pre-writing the senior seminar paper. That's right. 2055. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but then when the election ended, I kind of wanted, I'm not, I'm also on election check therapy, oh, although right. I'm not a, a political scientist. Um, and I wanted to do something where I got to participate more. Uh, I'm also usually at a meeting, so I'll get the podcast started and leave. So we, we shifted from Election Shock Therapy as the, the name of the podcast feed to Live from AC Second. There we go. Uh, which is, allows, is a, a podcast network. So it allows us to drop different shows on this um, throughout. So uh, we really use this as a way to create platforms for other profs. So I think we have about 11 shows on the podcast network. Now, some of those have only been a one-off or a pilot that we never did a second one for. But there's multiple. like Netflix. That's right. That's right. But there's, mul there's multiple shows that have 10, 15, 20 episodes and, and are sort of growing. So this semester, we're putting up two or three podcasts a week on that same feed. So if someone su subscribes to one, they're getting all of these shows. And again, the listener base is around um, the long tail of it ends up being around 100 listeners uh, per episode. So that's been really, really exciting. We've done things like faculty roundtables where um, we'll just get 
four interesting faculty together and we'll throw out one question. We'll say, okay, what are you reading right now? And we'll record for half an hour or an hour. Uh, and just to sort of capture conversations. Uh, so over the time, we did 170 episodes of CWC, the radio show. Uh, that ended in 2011. Uh, at this point, uh, our total podcast total, counting the one we did today, is 372, which means, again, thinking, I'm looking at Anne-Marie, uh, our department chair, thinking about creating a historical source. That's probably around 320 hours of Bethel faculty in conversation that we've sort of collected uh, so far. So I think that's a, a pretty important, a pretty uh, powerful source. And it continues. So we thought I'd say a little bit about our newest podcast we've been doing. Uh, Annie Berglund, one of our former students turned colleagues, uh, apparently called us Gare Bear at one point. That's our kind of celebrity <laughs> couple's name. It's the most unfortunate <laughs> moment of the of the. Right. Uh, but we actually fooled another collaborator into our newest one. So Chris Moore has joined us, and so I'm calling this MGM. There we go. That's Moore way Garrett Smallberry. Is that okay? Yeah. So this is called the 252. Uh, this I always introduce as Sports Talk Radio is done by academics, which is maybe the worst tagline in the history of uh, podcasting. Uh, and so I'll say more about the genesis for this in a second. But basically what it is, is it's actually it's the same format as CWC, the radio show. It kind of starts with talking through current events these sorts of things. There's some jokey things. We end by recommending three upcoming sports events to watch. Uh, and then the middle is a conversation. And sometimes it's the group of us, sometimes we bring in another colleague, like Sarah Shady did something recently. Uh, and then we also have brought in some, some guests. So for example, Art Remillard, who is a religious scholar at St. Francis University. Paul Putz, who teaches sports history at Messiah College. We've done phone interviews with them. We've got others coming in. I need to say the phone interviews are no longer putting the recorder up to the phone. Mildly. Now. Yes, we can actually run cables into the phone now. And so like, we've got a March Madness bracket going right now. We talk about all sorts of things that seem not especially academic, but what our larger point is sports becomes a way to ask deeper questions, and it becomes a prism for things in American society, and, and, and sometimes we talk about how sports doesn't just reflect, but actively changes American society. So we've talked about a lot lately the value of athletic labor, from massive baseball contracts to the question of amateurism with student athletes. Uh, we've talked about gender discrimination, the U.S. women's national team lawsuit that was filed on International Women's Day. Uh, we've talked a lot about religion and race and, and professional sports, and we just did an interview with two student athletes at Bethel, Jana Rosti and Jaron Rosti. Um, that'll come up on this week's episode. So now at this point, let me pause and acknowledge that those of you who are faculty or staff who are thinking about this saying, oh, that sounds fantastic and glamorous and exciting. I want to do this. But wait a minute. This is technical. There are like technological problems here. How do I possibly do a podcast? Sam, can you explain how we do something like the 252 EST live from ACT? Yeah, so, so uh, over the years, we have sort of collected uh, pieces of technology on the way, along the way through technology grants, things like that. When we recorded that first clip that you heard, we just had a little audio recorder, which is probably worse than recording it on your cell phone. Yeah. Um, now we ha I have a cart in my office that has like a mixing board and nice condenser mics. And we so if you, you'll frequently see me wheeling this around. That means we're going to record something. So we'll just set up in someone's office, one plug into the, uh, into the wall, you have your mics, and we can record pretty quickly. So we can record pretty spontaneously, too. And I should say, there's also a podcast studio next yes. door to us. Com Studies has turned the radio station into a podcast studio. But yeah. we have this option as well. Yeah, so, so, there, it, so it's, it's, it's pretty easy. And, and my goal with this, uh, the reason the cart lives in my office, and part of why we're talking about this today is we're going to end by encouraging you to do this as well, is... Um, you don't, Chris, do you know how to put a podcast together like we're doing right now? I actually do. Okay, 
Sorry. Andy Bramson, do you know how to? Okay, I needed someone to say. No, like you don't have to know how to do it. Like I, I, I'm taking care of that for the people that we have on. So I said we have, you know, 11 different different shows on that network. Uh, all you need to do is know your content, what you want to talk about. Sam is easy to take advantage of. He really <laughs> doesn't have true. any limits in the use of his time and seems happy to do this for no compensation at all. But, we, but, but, but part of it is that, is that the way that we put these together, I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're a podcast listener, there's really kind of two types of podcasts. There are things that are like um, uh, almost like radio magazine shows that are highly edited, you know, intricately put together. We've made some of those over the years. They're a lot of work, but those, those are fun to do as well. Um, or there are things which are more sort of interview-based or discussion-based, like a lot of the shows that we're doing, which ties into this sort of thinking in public idea, which, again, we recorded, I think last night, um, Mitchell said, hey, can we record tomorrow morning to talk about Mueller? Everybody emailed yes. We recorded at 9. By 10.30, it was, it was available to the world. So we have, we, have a, we have things set up in a way where we can get things out that sound, I think, pretty good, out, uh, out pretty quickly. But sometimes we want to be even more spontaneous. So this uh, January, Chris and I were traveling in Europe uh, with a group of students, and we had some really great conversations and said, I wish we could podcast here. And then we looked down and realized that Chris had his phone and I had my iPod and realized like we actually could just record a podcast here. So we actually did two podcasts while we were in Europe, just in our hostel rooms. And again, after we recorded in about 25 minutes, these were available, uh, these were available on our podcast feed to the world. So there is nice technology you can use, but in a pinch, you can use stuff that you all have with you right now uh, to record something that actually sounds pretty good. Yeah, so part of what we're here to do is to maybe alleviate some concerns and explain how you can make this happen. Now, I'd say the second concern that I think is legit and, and we should all think about is we are all stretched in a million directions. We only have so much time, and this sounds like it's adding yet one more thing to do. Even if it's a half hour, an hour, that's taking time from something else, right? And, and so that's true to an extent, and it's a commitment you would have to make. At the same time, I want you to consider that maybe this is not just an add-on, but this flows out of and into other things you're already doing as a scholar, as a librarian, as a teacher. So come back to the 252. The reason we're doing this podcast is because Chris Moore and I this fall proposed a new course that will debut next spring called History Political Science 252L, History and Politics of Sports. Now, it's a topic Chris and I are very interested in, we're not experts in, and we thought we would use a podcast to essentially think through an entire course a year before we taught it. So we would start to explore some of the questions about race and gender and faith and justice that we're going to do in the course, but in a low stakes kind of way where we can talk through it. We'd start interviewing actual experts like Paul and Art, recording some of that, try out guest speakers. Maybe in a way also build a little buzz around the course because we've started to talk to students uh, about it as well. And it's a model that I think is really powerful. And I've experimented with, Sam and I have experimented with in a couple of ways. So on the Pietist Schoolman podcast, the first season of that was simply a sequel to a book you can see up in the display, but I'll hold up as well. So this was The Pietist Vision of Christian Higher Education, which is a book written by current and former Bethel faculty about our religious tradition and what it means to Bethel. And I thought, this is great, but it was, you know, it was only 12 voices. What if we did a podcast series that was a sequel to the book? And so we brought in, some of the authors came back and expanded on their comments, but then we did 
brought Laurel in to talk about campus ministry, brought Gretchen Hunt in to talk about athletics, and she'll be on the 252 next month. Um, and it became kind of an extended, like it flowed out of that project and kept the book alive in a way that otherwise that's the limitation of a book, right? It's published, it's done. Well, the podcast let it live and breathe a little bit more. The second season of that podcast, uh, uh, Mark Patty, uh, a friend of mine, a pastor here at Salem Covenant, we just got a contract with University Press to write a new book about pietism. And we thought, why don't we use a podcast to essentially work through the outline of our book before we ever sit down to write anything, and in the process, create a historical record of it. And so Sam joined us, kind of served as the stand-in for the audience of what became the Pietist Option. So you know, for three months before we started writing anything, we had talked through and started developing ideas and trying things out. And I think that's a real powerful idea. I mean, so I think this works for teaching, I think it also works in the sense if you are working on a book project of some sort or an article, they actually use this as a way to uh, think out loud about it. And in fact, I had kind of forgot this was wired into the original podcast. As I listened to Stacy talk about the purpose of this, here's one other things that you might have heard her say. We're hoping this will provide a little bit more informal channel for you, so students, i.e to get a sense of how the faculty reflect about some of these things in the course. Essentially, to let students listen in to faculty talk behind the scenes instead of just showing up at lecture and hearing the kind of finished product or showing up to a small group and, and seeing a discussion led. I don't think it's actually in that first episode, but another real powerful idea Sam had talked a lot about was it's a chance to listen in, I think we said initially on a CMOD meeting or on a faculty lunch table. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, what a C so there's two CWC teams. There's the BMOD team and the CMOD team. I'm on the BMOD team when we meet. We meet for usually a pretty short amount of time. We get our work done, figure out what we need to do, uh, and then we leave and go about our day. A CMOD meeting, and then we have the sort of patron saint of a lot of what we're talking about here, Kevin Craig, um, is uh, starting from the very beginnings when we were in CWC, we noticed that uh, running a meeting in CMOD, and I don't know if it's because of the time of the day or the people teaching it, but instead of it being like a 20-minute meeting where we sort of went through a checklist, they became sort of these expansive conversations where uh, we might, well, we'd talk about what we needed to at the course, but other questions would get raised and people would sort of bring their intellectual questions to this group of people. Um, and sometimes the conversations would be, would be very um, heavy and important. Sometimes they would be silly. Um, but always really interesting. So we thought, well, this is actually a, a segment of the life of a faculty member that's happening behind doors that students don't get to see. But actually, these are really great intellectual conversations, and they're freer-flowing. So part of when we started to think about like these faculty roundtables was getting to what if we could put something like that out there, where, where, where we had... Uh, kind of a, a looser sense of what we needed to cover. In election shock therapy, like we don't want to get too far away from talking about uh, politics and elections and things like that. But in a roundtable, we kind of are okay letting it go where it goes. So, you know, sometimes people will ask, like, what is this? What is this show about? And it's like, well, it's about whatever we're talking about, and that's, you know, so so it's free in that way. Another model we used to think about this is just like a lunch table conversation. So, uh, very often we're sitting in the the dining center talking, and we might move fluidly from you know soup puns to talking about the future of higher education and like and and it's like oftentimes we'll you will leave a lunch and say man i wish we had recorded that there was actually really interesting ideas that came out of that so this was a, a little bit more formal way to uh, keep a record of those things and so the metaphor i want to pick up on here is that we do all these things naturally but we're doing them behind closed doors and what strikes me more and more is that the life of a scholar, the life of someone who works in higher ed is in many ways very private. 
And, uh, and so the visual metaphor that we want you to think about for today is what my office looks like, <laughs> at, least, at least until we move up to CC fourth floor where uh, Katie used to be and all of a sudden we're more out of sight. But for now, I'm in a very public place, right? When I first came here, there was a lovely forest outside and I had a bird feeder that I inherited from Neil Edinga and it was pastoral and beautiful and soothing. And then they tore it all down and built the Brush Harbor Commons. And I was not happy about that. And then I decided to embrace the fact that I had a window looking out not on trees, but on students and visitors and parents and tours and guests doing interim abroad fairs. And uh, you know, understandably, most of our colleagues in that part of the world close their shades. And every once in a while, I do too. Sometimes it needs to be private, right? Most of the time, though, I just leave it there. And it's the point now where I don't even notice what's happening. Uh, nasty people like Gary Long will sneak up and <laughs> rattle on the glass and honestly like, startle. And, uh, but I don't even notice. Like, uh, people will come in and like, they'll be waving and I don't even know what's going on. And like, mostly that's just sloth and forgetfulness on my part. You know, if I actually closed the shade, I'd probably forget that and this metaphor would be abandoned. But I leave it open and the reason for that that I, that I do cling to and will regret losing in a few months is my work is public, right? And um, I don't know that many people are staring at what I do, but think about how private most of our work is. You know, it, it's, it's kept apart by the fact that we close doors on these meetings. It's kept by the fact that unless you can pay the expense of tuition that comes here, you don't get to see us teach. Or we're busy people who don't get to see each other teach. Um, and as scholars, most of what we do is very private. Maybe this is especially true of the humanities, but it's probably true of the sciences and other fields as well. Like it's very solitary. And there's something monastic and cloistered about going off to the archive or holding up with a book, right? It's very private. Um, and then if you communicate largely, it's through some kind of medium where there's a certain jargon you have to master and there's background knowledge you have to understand to make sense of it. You know, this is not open to the larger public, however you want to define it. And I think in some ways that's fine and that's, that's innate to the disciplines of what we're doing because they're disciplines, right? They're not open to just everyone. I think there are real problems with that too. It's one of the reasons there's a lot of mistrust and misunderstanding around what we do in some of our constituents. And so what can we do to actually make a bit more public our life of the mind? Scholarship, research, writing, teaching. Well, I mean, this is partly what we're doing when we have a podcast, and it's partly what I do when I blog. So I started my blog in June of 2011. I just kind of got to the end of the year and decided I want to do this. And partly it was for writing practice. I had not written a book to that point. I had an edited book coming out and I thought at some point I really need to work on writing. And the best way to learn how to write, I'm sure April will tell you, is you have to write, right? You just do it and you have to be disciplined about it. And it might not be great. And maybe I needed to kind of overcome some of my inhibitions and, and try to be less polished and be a little bit more raw and, and just write. But the other thing I wrote at my blog, you know, to share it with the world, was I wanted to think in public. So I wrote that, if nothing else, I simply hope to clear out some stray thoughts, taking up mental space, expose them to the harsh light of day, and see if they look as profound on screen as they can sound in my mind at 1 a.m., which is mostly when I wrote in the early days of this uh, blog, because I had young kids. Um, I don't know if it's really that dramatic, but there is something to most of what we, most of our thought life is concealed, right? But maybe there's a virtue to thinking in public. And uh, apparently I was not the only one. Uh, in 2012 at the Atlantic Monthly, back in those days, uh, ta Coates, before he was a best-selling author, was just a blogger. And at one point he wrote this. My thoughts are still raw here. And I'm trying to pull it together a lot. Please forgive me for the messiness of the logic here. This is public thinking. 
And a lot of what he has since written in hardcover, best-selling format started as him thinking out loud about reparations, about racial injustice, about warfare, Civil War, World War II. And he wanted to acknowledge, maybe this is a futile plea, like, you've got to forgive me. Like, I'm kind of working these things out. It's, it's conditional and provisional, and I'm going to change my mind, and I'm going to make mistakes, right? And, and, but that's the nature of a lot of what we do, right? There's an education scholar named Sherman Dorn who wrote a chapter about digital history that I really like that said that a lot of digital work, whether it's podcasts, blogs, other projects, is pre-argument scholarship. We do this all the time as historians, but it's concealed from sight or it's dressed up in other things. What if you actually showed it to the public? Show a historian wrestling with a question, trying to interpret a source, right? Show a scientist trying to uh, come up with a hypothesis and working through the methodology of something. And you know, maybe even more grandly, I should acknowledge I do this as a Christian too. And so some of what I do on a blog or what we do on a podcast is about things that could happen at any college. But some of what I'm doing, you know, is it's about the church and it's about sin and it's about faith. And ultimately, it's about God. This will seem like an unlikely analogy, but one of my favorite statements about this comes from Chance the Rapper, who uh, I said on Coloring Book that I'm, th I'm talking to God in public, right? And in some sense, I'm talking to God in public. And we do this, like, naturally. You say, this is what's great about Bethlehem. We do this in the classroom, right? And we integrate faith and learning. But again, a lot of that, I think, is hidden from our constituents. What if we were to actually talk to God on blogs and podcasts and other formats? Now, I know that there are concerns about this. I can read body language, and I have experienced them myself. So let me head off some of those concerns by stating them, because if we confront our fears, we can face them. Okay, why is this risky? Number one, you're going to say stupid things, or you're going to write stupid things. Uh, we have done this, right? And you know what? We live in an age where that will not simply disappear into the ether. It will be recorded, and Sam will turn it over to the Bethel Digital Library, or it will live on WordPress, and people will find it and tweet about it, and you will be shamed for it. And you know what? Maybe that's inevitable. And maybe it won't be forgiven easily. Like we've, we've done this. You, know, you record 170 CWC, the radio show episode, you're going to make a stupid joke about something that 10 years later will hurt someone, and you'll have to apologize to them and to the larger faculty. I think you should still do it. Um, you are also admitting lack of knowledge or certainty. Right? Uh, this, is, this is all pre-thinking. This is messy thinking. And this is really hard because as PhD holding professors, we've been socialized into thinking we are experts. And we get up on a stage and people bow down before us for our expertise and they appreciate us for our expertise. And part of me wants to hold on to that. And not everyone is an expert on the history of prostitution. You should listen to Anne-Marie Coistra when she writes a book or gives a talk. But this is really dangerous too because it makes us feel superior, right? How dare you challenge, how dare you question what I think about this? Well, the very nature of this is that you don't really know what I, th I don't really know what I think about sports and history and politics. I'm working it out, right? This is where having taught CWC has been transformative for me. Because I had to give a lecture yesterday in front of my department chair for retenure about the late Middle Ages. The last time I took a class about the late Middle Ages was my freshman first semester in college, right? And every twice a year, I get up there and I talk about the Black Death, and the Babylonian captivity of the church, and the Great Schism, and the Little Ice Age, as if I know anything, right? And at the same time, I can do it with some confidence because mostly what I'm doing is asking questions. I'm modeling something for students 
So again, I think we do this in classes. Maybe we can do it in other formats as well. But the scary thing about that is you are Bethel folk. And in any Christian college, including this one, it can be risky to make mistakes and admit uncertainty and ask complicated, unpopular questions in public, and you will get people criticizing you and wanting to take back the institution from you for doing so. And some of you don't have tenure as a protection against that. And so I mostly want to say, if you don't have tenure, like I think none of this should apply to you. <laughs> like that's, that's an enormous risk to ask you. If you do have tenure, uh, this is what tenure is for. It is not a lifetime employment contract. It is to liberate you to engage in free inquiry. Um, I wrote, of course, I thought in public about all this by writing blog posts, two of them today, about this very talk. And I hearken back to uh, this quotation from Carl Lundquist. I think I'm constitutionally obligated, as Chris Garrett's at Bethel, to talk about Carl Lundquist <laughs> at least once in every library talk. And in 1961, he wrote this. Our hope at Bethel is to find the golden mean where there exists sturdy confidence in the spiritual and intellectual integrity of the school, even when it raises disturbing questions, engages in rigid self-evaluation, expresses dissatisfaction with the status quo, and seeks less popular but more consistently Christian solutions to the problems that vex mankind. And this is impossible. We are supposed to disturb and maintain the confidence of the people we are disturbing. That is inherent to our mission. There is no way to avoid it. The only choice here is to do it or to cease being Bethel. Right? We, we have got to ask, we've got to propose unpopular solutions, complain about problems in the status quo, disturb, afflict, right? That's what it means to do it. But I think he's also right. We need to maintain the confidence. The I wrote 1,800 words about trust this morning at my blog because this fuels education. We need to trust our students, our students need to trust us, we need to trust our colleagues, our administrators, we need to trust each other, our trustees, of course, need to trust us, we need to trust them. And so how do you do that? How, how, do, you, how do you disturb and dissatisfy and, and do all of this and maintain trust? Well, it's hard. Like, we, we don't all go to converged churches anymore. Or we're not all Carlsons and Andersons anymore. And there are hard questions to be asked here. Right? And so what do we do? Well, maybe we need to be vulnerable. Maybe we need to be willing to actually take a risk and to put ourselves out in front of public to show that we are not simply lofty experts who defy you to question what we're doing, but to actually admit uncertainty and doubt, and to share little glimpses of what our classrooms actually look like instead of rumors about what's said in our classrooms. And again, this is much easier for me to say as a tenured full professor. It's much harder if you're not tenured, if you're on staff. But something's got to happen. Something has got to change to rebuild trust between our constituents and our faculty. And this is my best way of doing it. And maybe this is yours. So now that you've heard that pitch, and you're like, oh, that sounds fantastic. How do I, where do I sign up? Sam is here to present an altar call. <laughs> so, I mean, and that really is because we can get up and you've, most people in this room have heard us talk about stuff that we're doing, and that's not really that important. This is actually a rerun of a talk from 2007. <laughs> I'm sorry, you didn't notice. But, um, but what is important is that, that this is something that you can be part of in big ways and small ways. Like I said, on our podcast feed, you know, we have some shows that have 60 episodes. We have some shows that have one episode. Um, we do one-offs where somebody has an idea and says, well, what, what's, what if we just did this and see how that works? And we thought that was an interesting idea. We did it and abandoned it, and that's okay. What we can offer is, like I said, about 60 to 100 people that will download that show. So it's a chance to sort of reach out to them. And 
it's a chance for you to then take that and reach out to communities that you're connected with. So that's one of the first things we tell people when they record something is, when it's up, push this out on your social media. If you're somebody who uses Twitter or uses Facebook or uses other, I don't use any of this stuff. Instagram. Instagram, sure. Um, uh, that's yes. <laughs> so, so because that, that helps expand the pool of people who might find what you're doing, but also might find what other people are doing. So I, I, this morning I sat down and wrote, it's like, okay, what if I was to pitch ideas for shows that all of you might be part of, this is a very non-exhaustive list that I came up with like five minutes ago. So um, one of them, and, and actually I, I, I have pitched this idea to the faculty development folks, like I love uh, when faculty development does things like iStudio. Like there was one about humor in the classroom. That was amazing. Now the problem with that is it was at four o'clock on a Monday. And maybe you're available on four o'clock on a Monday, maybe you're not. But if we took that idea and said, what if instead of this being a presentation, what if iStudio was a podcast? And you could record it and have this, this great conversation with the, the, you know, the different people you wanna bring in. And then that lives on, not just for that semester, but that lives on in perpetuity, right? So that's, I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, a few years back, I was in a, a PLC, a professional learning uh, community. I'm looking at April, is that right? Community, committee, I don't remember. Okay, uh, and it was, a, it was about creativity and it was some of the most interesting conversations that I've ever had. Ken Steinbach was on it and, uh, and it, it was great, but again, that was a closed door. There were six people in that room. We met, I think, four or five times that semester. A, I wish I had taken better notes, and B, I wish more people could have been part of it. What if you did a six-part podcast that was a PLC, where you took a particular topic and we're all gonna read something about it and, uh, and then have a couple of meetings where we discuss that? What if you did a book club as a, uh, that's not even on my list, I just thought of that one. What if you did a book club as a podcast? Say, okay, in, in four weeks, we're gonna read this text. Send that out on social media, say, read this, and then listen to this series of faculty having a conversation about this. Hey, do librarians read books? I think they do, well, right. <laughs> uh, and they recommend books, which is also great. Um, we talked about roundtables, just I think interdisciplinary roundtables, having people from different disciplines uh, approaching uh, a question and seeing how they talk about it. Uh, here's a formula for a podcast, uh, blank colon public blank. And what I mean by that is we have, we have a, we've done one episode of a podcast we call Sarah Shady Public Philosopher. And the idea is what if we took the tools of an academic philosopher and used them to think about uh, whatever contemporary issues we came up with. So we did one uh, where we talked about, this was back in 2018, we talked about Confederate memorials and how do you, how do you deal with that? As a, as a philosopher, how do we use the tools of philosophy to think about that question? But you could also use that same podcast to talk about um, tanking in the MBA. You could, I mean, you could just talk about anything. Like how do you use the tools of an academic in your field to talk about something? So imagine uh, Jeff Jacob, public economist. That'd be really interesting. I would listen to that. Uh, uh, having a podcast for your department. That'd be really interesting. You got interesting people in your department. Or think about things that Bethel does well. Uh, one area that I think there's really interesting work uh, in the arts and humanities is on things like interfaith dialogue. Bethel is a leader in that. What if there was an interfaith dialogue podcast? That would be really interesting. Um, a reconciliation podcast. That, we talk about that as one of our core values, but we sometimes struggle to articulate what that means. What if there was a, a Bethel reconciliation podcast where we really dug into that and had scholars coming in to dig into that idea? Um, how about a podcast called In Layman's Terms, where you have somebody interview uh, somebody from any field talking about their research with the idea of how do we take 
what um, you know, someone is doing in optics in the physics department and get it so I can understand it. That would be really interesting. It would also, again, expand the circle of who can understand these things. And, and you've got la- a title already for that. That's right. Okay. And the last one I'm going to throw out there because this is a podcast I did a while ago and haven't gone back to in a while and really need to, which is uh, I did a podcast called Autobiography where I would just interview Bethel faculty, kind of a long-form interview about their intellectual autobiography, Again, Kevin Craig used to always have us do intellectual autobiographies in, in summer meetings, um, and that was really fascinating. So doing an interview podcast where you talk about how did, how did people become a scholar in this field or that field? I mean, because the trajectories of our lives are not straight lines. So kind of learning about some of that. So those are all potential things that, um, that you could run with. And again, we're not saying, hey, go do this. We're saying, hey, come, let's do this together. Because really, I'm really excited to be part of really kind of any of these projects or the better ideas that I'm sure you have with thinking about it for more than four minutes. We're almost out of time, so I'll just tack on here and say that if you don't want to do a podcast and you want to do a blog, the chief obstacle to that is actually starting a blog, right? And, and so one thing I've been trying to think a lot more about in the past year or two is how do you share a platform you've already built? And so I'm here to offer both. I do have a blog that I've had Bethel uh, faculty write for my own blog, but I also run something called The Anxious Bench, which is about Christians who do history. And so if you're not sure you want to do a blog, but you want to pitch something for an existing platform, that's something I would love to share with more of our faculty as a way to maybe try out some of the ideas we're working on here, and maybe that grows into something else for you uh, in your own time. But I think mostly we just want to help uh, think in public, I guess, about how we think about these things, and hopefully something here is winsome and has caught your attention and sparked an idea, and we're just here then to help equip you to do it. So thanks for coming. Enjoy your throwback lunch in the DC, and we'll see you around Bethel. Thanks.